Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. You can listen on your favorite app or at jodystevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is made possible by great friends like Joshua's Heart in memory of Joshua Brent Moore, bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction online at joshsheart.org and Jody Stevens Productions for commercial voiceover, narration, production, MC, and public speaking online at jodystevens.org. Welcome back to part two with Ed Corey. Again, I'm Jody Stevens. Ed has worked in the field of addiction, trauma, recovery, family issues, and more for decades. He's written several books and he's taught classes for people from nearly 70 nations. You can grab his books and find out more about what he does at equippinghearts.com, his website, equippinghearts.com. We covered a lot of stuff, attachment issues, family dynamics addiction in part one so if you haven't listened to part one please go back and check that out tell me a little bit about your story if you are comfortable um what happened where it took you what happened with the personal family dynamics since we're talking about that and where you are now i was adopted when i was six months old um, I have absolutely no uh, or probably mini- minimal information about birth parents. Just, you know, this was back in, uh, I was born in 1959, so I would have been adopted in 1960. And back then, they just, you know, you just didn't share stuff. So I was right. in an orphanage or a foster home for six months. My parents that adopted me were good parents. Um, Mom was my big joy connection early in life. Um, Dad was born in another country and a different culture, and he came here in 1946. Addiction runs very high in her family. Uh, I'm talking about my adoptive parents, not my birth parents. The culture Dad was raised in was real performance-oriented, and I didn't understand this till after he died, until one of his cousins was talking to me, but from early, he was put under a whole lot of pressure to exceed, um, excel, perform, be a doctor, the whole, the whole schmeal. I kind of grew up in a house that we were a little subculture-ish because we were different from my friends with a lot of pressure to exceed, perform, excel. Um, right. Dad could be, dad loved me. I mean, dearly, dad loved me. But his dad died when he was like seven so there's some major gaps he had with how do you do this parent thing as a father. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of, you know, you need to succeed, you need to perform. So there was a lot of pressure. Um, Dad could be very rigid and controlling. And mom was, you know, none of us knew what to do when dad was upset or dad was just pushing. But I remember um, the way that affected me was, I just, I remember, I must have been 11 or 12 or something like that. And I remember thinking, if this is what life is like, I'm doing drugs as soon as I possibly can. Oh, my gosh. Because I cannot handle life like this. Mm -hmm. It was just way too much pressure. I think I had 
pretty secure, secure attachment with my mom, which was great. Um, we had a lot of extended family, like my mom's brothers were over every Sunday for dinner. We'd see my dad's relatives in New Jersey, and that was always big and joyful and fun. So family was kind of a lot of pressure, but there were also relationships that were just a blast. Um, my mom's youngest brother, Uncle Bill, was just awesome because dad didn't know about basketball, football, baseball, any of that stuff. So Uncle Bill was the one that would throw the ball with me, toss the football with me, do sports stuff. I continued, you know, the pressure. Um, I'm going to drink drug as soon as I can up through into uh, high school. And I was a really good kid. I mean, I didn't cause my parents trouble. I wanted to, I mean, I was stuck in the four deadly P's, please and perform, <laughs> mm -hmm. try to minimize pain and find pleasure where I could. I tried getting high the first time when I was 16, but I finished school, finished high school when I was 17. And that's when I, when I left home, we kind of had a blowout at home with me not wanting to move with them to where they were going out of state. It was just a blowout. So I ended up diving right into drinking and drugs as hard and as fast as I could. Um, I think the first day I moved into my apartment, I was just high as a kite, and I loved it. Ended up doing a lot of demonstrating, hanging out with people that were not, um, you would not want your parents to meet. <laughs> you right, right. right. <laughs> um, life kind of revolved around school and uh, getting high. The really interesting thing is um, I, I hit a very fast bottom. Um, maybe my mom was praying for me. <laughs> yeah. I think I hit a real fast bottom because it was, I was only really out of control for about a year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the thing I really didn't like is violating my conscience, my value systems. Just, I didn't like the person I became. I had a good friend in one of my college courses who was a senior and he started spending time with me. Um, he'd take me to lunch and just listen to me talk, just listen. He was a Christian that was helping lead a small church someplace. I remember after about a year, I was hitting bottom, and I was like, okay. I called him up, said, look, here's where I'm at. I want to quit the drugs, but I don't, I mean, I want to, I got to stop using what I'm doing, and I need to change, but I want to keep my drugs. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like, well, I mean, that sounded reasonable to me. I didn't like the bad parts, but I still wanted the good parts. I always say therapy, you know, we initially go into therapy to figure out how we can fix ourselves without having to change. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> can somebody tell me how to keep living without having to change? It's like, uh -huh. mm, no, that's not possible. <laughs> but yeah. And so Brian was really great because he said to me, Ed, it doesn't work like that way. You really can't serve two masters with this. Yeah. You got to choose one. You know, I kept partying a little bit longer, but I eventually came to the point where, like, I am really done and Brian is right. And so yeah. I really, without understanding what I was doing, um, gave my life to Jesus. See, I was raised Catholic, mm -hmm. and I always had this sense of God with me for some reason. I don't know where it came from, but I know I experienced what I felt, what I learned was his presence when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah. even up into my early teens. So there was a foundation for God there that I had really wandered off from. Mm -hmm. Make a long story short, once I made that decision, 
um, I got really involved in a lot of the things that the church was doing. I mean, I didn't know I was supposed to go to a lot of meetings and be connecting with people that were healthier. I didn't know that, but that's what I ended up doing. About six weeks later, I threw out my drugs. Um, I quit using them, but I didn't want to get rid of good drugs until I was sure about this guy. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I, I haven't been drunk high, anything like that ever since. This was in 1978. Um, and then you moved in towards this all this mental health and treatment. I mean, how cool is that? God was really gracious to me that, um, you know, I understand what it feels like to want to quit and not be able to, because mm-hmm. I, I went, I did that one. Did not work. <laughs> yeah. I think I was on the wagon for six days, but there was enough, because it was a relatively quick bottom, I didn't do um you know, severe and lasting damage to important relationships, to my future, anything like that. Basically, to to put it this way, I was an ass for about a year. Uh, (laughs) Right. But it taught me what it was like to wrestle with an addiction that was bigger than me. Now, that doesn't count all the other stuff. Remember, I talked about beeps, behaviors, events, experiences, people, substances. Well, I was dealing with the substances, but I had... Over the years, I've had negative negative attachments with food, um, with exercise, porn, and codependency, of course. So it's really been a journey of learning to allow God to connect with me at increasingly deep levels of my life to replace the other stuff that I'd attached to. Um, and he has been so awesome with that. And I would not have been able to do it without relationships with people walking the same journey as me. I can't emphasize how important other people are in my journey and still yeah. are today. Yeah, the relational aspect is huge. You know, we have to fill the void and then also just, you know, filling the addictive patterns, as you say, because you're just going to replace it with something else (laughs) until you can get to the root of what's happening or, you know, develop healthier relational skills, coping Mm -hmm. skills, all those sorts of things. Because as you say, you know, particularly that whole concept of the reward pathway and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I mean, you start with drugs and alcohol. And then like for me, I struggle then with the food thing because an addiction that's that strong, we feel like if we don't get the substance, we might die because yes. the reward pathway is what tells us we need food and sex mm-hmm. and all these things to survive, right? And yep. so that's what happens with addiction. Then we then it hijacks that. And so we think, oh, I have to have this or I'll mm-hmm. die. Well, I started to notice that as I studied the brain chemistry of that. Mm-hmm. looking at my struggles with food, realizing like, if I don't eat the clam chowder, I might die. Mm-hmm. You know, and I used to say, it always feels yep. like I, I think I'll die if I don't get that mm-hmm. stupid chocolate cake. And the reality was, yep. it really was <laughs> like, that yep. really was what it felt like, even though it wasn't true. And exactly. so sometimes just telling yourself like, this is not true. <laughs> you really no, it, won't die if you don't eat the fish and chips. And the, you know, we were just at the coast. You yeah. know how that is. You know? No, you're exactly you're exactly right about that. That's that's. I mean, I remember the boys when when they were younger. We'd be driving down the road. We're like ten minutes from home, and like I'm starving. We need to go to McDonald's. I'm just going to die. <laughs> I'm yeah. Like, I'm like, no, you're not. But honestly, that's what it feels like inside. 
if, if I don't get this or if I don't make this feeling stop right now, I'm going to die. So, yeah, it, it's, you know, God's been really gracious to me to um, help connect me with awesome mentors, people I look up to, and really awesome peers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I mean, he has been so gracious in helping me, helping meet those needs. And the, you mentioned relational skill training, which I think is also important. I work with an organization called Thrive that does relational skill training. And we went through three years, my wife and I went through three years of their training. It's a really intensive one week out of the year with kind of homework and activities to do during during the year until you come back for the second year of, of training and so on. We... Um, we help lead parts of that conference now because the relational skill part is critical. Most of us didn't grow, like I did not grow up with great relational skills. I mean, I had some, Mm -hmm. but there's just a lot I missed. Yeah. That conference has been really transformative. I've heard of that before. Yeah. It's thrivetoday.org. It's run by Chris and Jen Corsi. I think we went in 2004, and I think since probably 2007 or 8, we've been helping lead the first year of training for couples. And it's really about learning how to synchronize in levels of joy and quiet together, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is, um, there's a lot of great activities where you're face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, learning how to interactively build joy and then quiet together. It's all about dopamine and serotonin regulation. And that really helps form um, more secure attachments. So I love watching it. I love being part of it and seeing it happen. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Talk to me about family. So in your experience as a addiction recovery mm-hmm. therapist, how have you seen addiction impact the entire family? Well, it's kind of like you set off a grenade in a room full of people. The shrapnel's going to hit everyone. Yeah. And it really doesn't, you know, some addictions are more obvious, some are right. more hidden, but everybody's getting shrapnel anyway. Just, you know, I watched, um, you know, some in my mom's family because of the addiction that went on there. Um, it's just, just painful. Everybody gets hurt. Of course, back in the eighties, when all some of the new, what's what was then new, the stuff by Sharon Wickscheider Cruz or Melody Beatty um, coming out, that were talking about family dynamics. They talked about the roles uh, that tend to emerge in um, families where there's addiction. I think those are all accurate. And I agree with it, too. Like, I was the lost Mm -hmm. child. And and for those of you that don't know, it kind of ties into homeostasis. It's just if if you're in a dysfunctional situation, you develop a role. And your role is not based on authenticity, right? And so as you grow older, you don't really know who you are because you had to play this part. And the part may be that you were the good kid because you had to walk Mm -hmm. on eggshells because dad was an alcoholic. Or Mm -hmm. it's just they've kind of studied some different roles. You know, my brother was the mascot. I mean, he was hysterical. He was like Robin Williams. He was so funny. Mm -hmm. And so I relate to those roles you were talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of addiction doctors and scientists say, nope, it's all hogwash. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I don't know why they say that, because for me being from with addiction in the family, I just did the, the genogram and it, I mean, it's bad. There's the, yeah. the blue and, it, you know, indicates addiction and the whole map is colored in blue, you know, and, and I see these these types of roles. And if, yeah. if you're wondering, what is that? Just look up family roles and addiction and, and it'll pop up and you can see the different types of roles. But I, you know, it's not the be all end all, but it definitely, um, I think is, is, is valid in, in, mm-hmm. and has its place in mm-hmm. the family dynamics and recovery. Family systems therapists, um, will, will, I, I had a boss that was a, family systems therapist, and I learned Mm -hmm. a lot from her, Um, they recognize those roles. They would tend to argue that um, those roles exist in any family, but the reason they are kind of written about so much in addiction is because the roles become more extreme. Right. Because the behaviors in the house are more extreme. Well, and that's what I always say, because we had addiction in the family, but my parents weren't alcoholics, but yet uh-huh. I related to all the roles. Yeah. So I always tell people, look, it's, these are really just dysfunctional roles. <laughs> they're, they're adapting roles. They're, yep. they're people we become. We all develop kind <laughs> of a false self to yep. protect ourselves, get our needs met. The, the more extreme, like you said, the more extreme, the more we lose ourselves. So yes. they're really just kind of codependent roles. And I think, I think the way to recovery is to figure out who we are outside of this role, maybe. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Coming to grips with the identity that God created us with, designed us with, I think is key because otherwise we'll keep flipping in and out of roles to get our needs met. A stable identity is such, is so important. Do you feel like involving the family is an important part of recovery? I believe it's critically essential. Mm -hmm. I think about families as a system that has rules in it that have um, predictable dynamics that have been laid out over time based on behaviors. The closest illustration I can come is if you can imagine a um, mobile is that mm-hmm. how you say it's the things that hang from strings from the ceiling? Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. They're like yep. pretty glass or whatever. If you can imagine one of those little pieces there is a person with addiction. And so what happens to that system is when they're up, they go up. And when they're down, they pull down. So the whole system is in a constant state of flux, depending on what the person with the addiction is doing. Or right. when you add on to the dysfunction of someone who's codependent or kids acting out, you get a mobile that's bouncing up and down constantly, has no homeostasis. So if you take the addict out of that system and provide her or him treatment, and you try to put them back in that system, the system itself is in that state of flux because that's how people learn to relate together. And those dynamics will lead to relapse in a heartbeat. And that is huge. So what we mean by homeostasis is it's just an attempt to maintain stability, mm-hmm. quote, while adjusting to conditions yeah. that are dysfunctional. And that's where we yeah. get those roles. So if we always acted this way, 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if you come from trauma or you come from drama, <laughs> trauma, uh-huh. drama, there can be an adrenaline in that. There can be yeah. an addiction in that. And so we're trying to keep things the same, which is why, mm-hmm. like, after my brother died, I thought, oh, phew. And I hate to say that sounds awful, but it was kind of like, okay, this drama's over. Well, mm-hmm. then another family member stepped in. Yeah. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I thought we were... Uh, you know, and so, so it's it, it, and so a lot of people, I think, you know, a lot of times, people with the addiction struggle so hard with this because yes. sometimes you have to leave the family dynamic, and sometimes you yeah. don't get back in. Like on my mm-hmm. husband's side, there's some narcissism and things, and mm-hmm. we're 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 the bad guys, and we're yeah. the sober ones. I'm, I'm like, yeah. what? So we didn't we we're not invited back in. Whereas in my family, it's just, it's not like that. It's just, but, but, you know, you, you get healthy and you, you try to go back into the family and you're like, they don't, they don't want me to get healthy. And I don't think it's that they don't want you to get healthy. They're just trying to maintain this dysfunction that they've always known and aren't even acknowledging the fact that they need help. Right. Yes. And because what they've, the roles they've learned is in those families is what, is how they see themselves. So they're going to keep yeah. doing the same things because that's what they've always done. Somebody yeah. said, what you live with, you learn, what you learn, you practice, what you practice, you become. Mm-hmm. So people in that family system are have learned a lot of really dysfunctional roles to cope with the craziness of addiction. Yeah. So in treatment, it is really important for spouses, um, whoever the most important attachments are in that person in the addict's life, it's very important that they are part of treatment where they come to learn to look at, you know, their own issues, their own codependency, their own behaviors, because otherwise, you know, we, in, in treatment, it used to be sometimes because I worked in a program for men for a while. Mm -hmm. So the spouse would, or the parents would finally drag their addict in for an intake interview right. and they're like my life my work's done here you fix them yeah fix my fix <laughs> so, my kid mm-hmm. yeah, yeah send them back fixed and we'll be fine oh. i remember one of the the guy that led the program and founded it after a while he would you know we'd be working sorting out what the person wanting treatment whether they were them coming in and then he would turn to the spouse or the parent and he'd go, so now what's your, pro- what's your problem? And they would go, well, I just told you. You see, he does this and he does that. And he would very patiently listen. And he goes, maybe yeah. you didn't hear my question. What is your problem? Yeah. And they would go, and finally it would dawn on them that he was asking them, is there an issue that you've got in the middle of this? Because mm. it's impossible to be in a really close relationship with someone with a severe addiction and not be affected. And the cool thing was we had family um, classes for them every weekend while they were in, while they were in treatment for the whole family. Mm. It's super important to do family therapy. It's not always possible. Mm -hmm. The challenge, how, how do we deal with that? You know, when you're, let's say you're talking with an adolescent and you know, right Mm -hmm. off 
where the issue is, but the rest of the family isn't willing. Like yeah. looking back, and I don't even know if it's an unwilling, it's just almost lack of education. Like I look yeah. back and obviously, you know, my brother's gone. It's, you know, it's too mm-hmm. late. But but I look back and I think, oh my gosh, there are so many different things we could have done. We just didn't mm-hmm. know. We just yeah. didn't. I mean, it was so... You know, the addiction was so bad, grand mal seizures and, and homelessness mm. and wandering. Yeah. I mean, it was it was beyond really even even understanding all this stuff. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it wasn't until 20 years later that I look back, you know, and now that I'm getting yeah. an MS and addiction counseling and all this mm-hmm. stuff that I can see all this stuff. Right. But yeah. but no one else in my family can, nor right. would they even want to look at it. Yeah. It was just how do we fix your brother? How do, how do we yeah. fix him? Right. And so. You know, in dealing with the the person that keeps going back into that system and keeps yeah. relapsing, it's it's really tough with adolescents because they believe they're invincible. In one sense, their lifestyle has not resulted in really really extreme um, consequences. I mean, their brain is not fully developed yet. Right? Yeah they they don't they don't. Uh, have the ability to recognize consequences depending on their age level. Yeah. So working with um, probably adolescents or probably age group 18 through probably 30 has been a tougher group to work with in part because they honestly have not suffered some of the horrific consequences, you know, other people have that have been at it a lot longer. So it's, it's a tough age. But whatever age it is, anything that's possible to get family involved and at least education about dynamics. And for me, part of the way that really fits, no matter who it is, is talking about relapse and relapse prevention. Mm, Um, There's nothing like really good data talking about um, here are the kind of outcomes you get without family involvement versus here are the outcomes you get um, with it. They call it psychoeducation, but basically Mm -hmm. just a a person could say, hey, I I get that maybe you don't believe in all this mumbo jumbo, but maybe come to this education class. Mm -hmm. And I think they're starting to incorporate a lot more of that where it's just, hey, it's just family education. We're just going to explain these are some of the dynamics we see. These are Mm -hmm. some of the roles we see. And in that way, you're not judging anyone. You're not, you right. know, judging dad for being in denial and not believing mm-hmm. in anything no. <laughs> other than medicine, you know, or no. whatever. And so you're just showing it in that way, right? Then mm-hmm. maybe the addict can look at it and go, oh, my gosh. And they yeah. can begin to see the dynamic and then mm-hmm. move in and out of it as needed with support. I think that's a great I, – I like the education piece. I think that's huge because it can it can really – help the person struggling with the addiction move out of that dynamic if they need to, or at least recognize the triggers that are within that dynamic. Yeah, I think that seems to be the the best card to play in those situations. Because at least on some level, you've you've got the information, you may be in denial about it, but at least, and that gets into relapse prevention planning for Mm -hmm. after treatment or discharge planning which is essential in treatment. And really the programs I know of that are doing the best job do the best job in that. And how are you going to reconnect to a supportive community? Right, right. Super important. Super important. 
Well, Ed, I could talk to you for another hour, but thank you for joining. Thank you for sharing just some of your insight. There's so much. I, I really, really appreciate it. Let people know how they can get in touch with you. You can find me the best way is through our website, which is equippinghearts.com. You'll find out uh, that's our ministry. That's what are the nonprofit we travel and train with. We do everything with. There are some free resources on the resources page you can take a listen to, and you'll find out information about uh, what we do and the three books. Awesome. And the three books are probably also on Amazon as well. Yes, they're on Amazon. If you Google my name or not Google, uh-huh. but if you type my name in on Amazon, the books will come up. All right. Well, Ed, well, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Jody. This was great. I had a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery, playing on your favorite app or on my website at jodystevens.org. It's J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, jodystevens.org. There you can check out my podcast, blog, recovery coaching info, speaking, and more. Check it out.